Welcome to Going Back, 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 the sports history podcast with all the stories you need to know and some you don't. My name is Brian Gay, and with me here is my co-host, Tom Young. Each episode, Brian and I will be choosing a story from this week in sports history, and this episode will feature two different events from March 19th to March 25th. We'll also touch on some of the hot topics in current sports, as well as drink a few cold beers coming from uh, Cinderland's Brewing tonight. Full Squish IPA. Pretty solid. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, Brian. So, got another fact to kick off the show tonight. So, this guy named uh, was Ernie Shore. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right. Sounds right. Um, he threw a more or less perfect game. Unfortunately, he did not. So, Babe Ruth started the game, walked the first guy, argued with the umpire, got into it with the umpire, and actually punched him in the face. So, needless to say, Babe Ruth was then ejected. Guy comes in. He's actually a very good pitcher himself in his, his own right. Had a 1.97 ERA and 12 starts to date in that season and ends up retiring the next 27 batters in order. Would you consider that a perfect game, Brian? <laughs> um, no. I, I No, I feel like you can't because perfect games are so rare in the sport of baseball that, you know, phenomenal outing. I'll give him the no-hitter. But that's not a perfect game, and he can blame Babe for that because the man had to control his temper. And if he didn't do that, then this never would have happened. Yeah, I think you can jot it down as a combined team no-hitter. I'm not going to give him the perfect game either. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately for Mr. Ernie Shore, he wasted, I don't want to say wasted, but more or less wasted this <laughs> outing. And just imagine, you know, you could have your name in the record books for a perfect game. Instead, you're going down as a combined no-hitter with Babe Ruth. Well, the thing is, I actually did know this fact. So I, but my thing is, I if he, it was a regular perfect game, I might not know about it. But because I know there's, I think there's what nineteen perfect games in MLB history. It's somewhere it's less than twenty, I believe. But um, I couldn't name most of them. But I, as soon as you started to say, as soon as you said that he threw a perfect game, but he didn't, I knew exactly what you were talking about. I recall having read this story. It's a much more memorable than some of these perfect games. Yeah, we got 23 perfect games in MLB history. 23. That's pretty cool. I mean, it's it's a rare feat. Um be really cool to see, I feel like, to watch one live. I don't I've never watched one happen. I've never watched a perfect game either. Um Roy Halladay's perfect game, I didn't even get to watch cuz the Flyers were in the Stanley Cup that night. <laughs> so yeah, I think you said that on our last episode actually. Yeah, they're it's like middle of the second period. Next thing you know, they the game's on, I think, NBC at the time. They pan over to show, like, the highlight. Oh, and breaking news, Roy Howdy just threw the whatever number it was, perfect game in MLB history at this point. <laughs> it's like the one time I'm not watching a Phillies game all year, Roy Howdy goes out and throws a perfect game. What are the odds? Right. And then when you watch the replay, it's like, well, I know it's going to happen, but it's still still somewhat exciting. It's still incredible. Um, yeah, best baseball feat I ever w- I was li- live at Dodger Stadium. 2017, when JD Martinez hit his four had a four home run game, and that's actually happened less in MLB history, and they're having perfect games. I say there's what five five or six of those maybe. Let's see, I'm not sure exactly how many there are, um, but I know it's not a lot. I, I want to say it's under ten. Well, let's see, 15, fifteen four home run games, just about ten off that. Five Hall of Famers, including. Um, the greatest Philly of all time, Mike Schmidt, 
And then three players who never even once saw an all-star game, names you would never even know. Um, so it's pretty pretty fascinating. But that was really cool because I don't really care for the Dodgers. I wasn't cheering for the Diamondbacks, who he played for at the time. But I knew something special was going on. I think the Dodger fans around me were not happy with me getting into it. So I was really, like, I was rooting for JD at that point because that was really cool. Yeah, when you, I mean, that's the great thing about going to the ballpark. You never know what you're going to see that day. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, speaking of baseball, this timing couldn't be better. Uh, Tom, we got the World Baseball Classic final on here right now. Our man Trey Turner is at the plate. I mean, as as we were saying before we got started, uh, if you weren't excited as a Phillies fan about Trey Turner, you got to be now. That grand slam the other night, just uh, unreal. Yeah, I I had chills watching it, and then he hits a home run the next game, too, to follow up. So, if he's doing this in the World Baseball Classic, it only elevates the hopes oh, yeah. I have for him this upcoming season and what the Phillies are going to do. And oh, I can't yeah. wait to see him in the red and white pinstripes in uh, a red October. Oh, yeah. That uh that Grand Slam he hit, honestly, the chills it gave me rivaled Bryce's home run from the playoffs this year. That game five blast. It was close. I mean, obviously, like, moving on to the World Series, the, the home run to move on to the World Series was huge, but... There was something about that and just how absolutely pumped he was. He actually went on to say it's the biggest home run he's ever hit in his career. Right, yeah. I mean, can you blame him? You're down. They were playing Venezuela that game, right? Yeah. Hits the grand slam in an 0-2 count as well. Talk about clutch. Oh, yeah. And then they went on to smoke Cuba in the semis, and here we are against the Japanese in the finals. Japan has an awesome team. Wait, get out of here. Is that another homer? Get out of here. Let's go, Trey. As we're talking about him, Trey Turner goes deep. Come on. He's ready to rumble. Fifth home run of the tournament. I think that uh, is the record, if I'm not mistaken, at this point. I believe you're right. Um, I think it was Ken Griffey with four. It's funny because Schwarber was up before him, and he's two for 11 with the home run, which is very Schwarber for you. Um, But come on. That timing couldn't have been any more perfect. Well, I'm not sure if you noticed, but with the World Baseball Classic, they're still playing under 2022 rules of MLB compared to, so there's no pitch clock, no shift, bases are yeah smaller. How do you feel about that so far in training camp? Do you like it? I think, what are your thoughts on the new rules? So I haven't watched too many spring training games, honestly, from a Phillies perspective, with I feel like half the stars not even available because they're playing in the World Baseball Classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't had much desire to want to watch it. It's not like there's any, you know, there's no positions really up for debate besides some bench spots and the fifth starter spot. And unfortunately, our boy Andrew Painter got hurt, shut him down. He's going to start throwing again here in a couple weeks. Hopefully ramps up and is of use for the team later in the season. But from what I've seen, I think games are about a half hour quicker, if not a little more, compared to where they were in spring training last year. Yeah, that's what they're seeing is that games are going quicker, but there's also more action in the game, which for me, I've never really been worried about the length of a baseball game because I love watching the game. I like that there's no pitch clock. It's yeah. definitely going to take some time to get used to seeing a pitch clock, but oh, I yeah. like the fact that the ball is in play more. It's as good as analytics can be for sports. I feel like it's really hurt baseball the most because yes. it's like, let me watch this, draw a walk, or I'm going to swing and miss or hit a home run because everyone's worried about their launch angle and how far they can hit the ball. Yeah, I, I fully agree. The big thing for me, though, is the banning of the shift. I know there's teams like working their way around it, but you're seeing more batted balls getting through, and it's just creating a more exciting game where you don't have to rely on the home run as much. I think it's going to put a better product on the field for the casual fan, but also I don't like them changing the game for the casual fan. 
No, agreed. But unfortunately, I think because of like our generation and older, they like the game. But the younger generation than us, they don't have the attention span because they're so used to these like 10, 15, 30 second clips they see on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, whatever. Yes. And with baseball games taking three and a half, four hours, they watch the first inning and they're like checked out and like, all right, let's go. Let's get out of here. I'm not going to lie. I get it. I mean. Look at these guys with the World Baseball Classic sitting on their phones. I definitely understand. it's It can be hard and tedious, to sit, especially to sit through a slow game. But to change the game for the average fan makes sense from a, an economic perspective. But as a baseball purist and a true fan of the game, the pitch clock, I don't know how I feel about it. It's definitely going to take some getting used to. It will, and I, I like the games that they'll be faster this way. You know, you start in those nine o'clock eight o'clock games in the playoffs and you don't have to worry about a four or five hour game and you can <laughs> right. get the better than normal time yeah but i feel like in the playoffs that's i kind of want to see that because i don't want players to be rushed i don't want them to be having to rush their routine whether it's on the mound in the box it's just like just let them play the game yeah it's gonna take a lot of getting used to for these guys jt real mudo is now six for nine through the world baseball classic that is our catcher I'm hoping they get him some more off days, at least from behind the plate this upcoming season for the Phils. This way his bat doesn't deteriorate. Stick him in as a DH, but yeah, but you know, it's that's the most taxing job in baseball is catching. With Bryce Harper out, I mean, speaking of Bryce Harper, he might be back sooner than anticipated. They said they're not putting him on the 60 day IL, which is huge, honestly. Right. So that means a couple things. One, he can most likely comes back before the all star break. Because if they put him on him now, he's just looking at May, middle of May, end of May, I should say, before he would be eligible to return. So that gives you hope he's back before then. And two, we really the only sp- spots up for the Phillies are a couple bench spots. And Scott Kingery, who's having a great spring training, is yeah. not on the 40-man roster. So you would have to cut someone from the roster if you want to put him on it. But if you put Bryce on the 60-day IL, that frees up the spot. But then, it, it, but then when Bryce comes back, somebody's got to go. Yeah, so either way, someone has to go if Kingery joins. I think Cave is going to make the roster. He's been raking for them in, in spring training, and I know he plays multiple outfield positions. Uh, Kingery would be really cool to see him. I feel like he kind of got the short end of the stick. The new coaching came in and changed up his swing and all that, and it just didn't work for him. And now that he's had a chance to kind of – the hype has disappeared. It's let him focus on his game. But I digress. Like you, we've said, we can talk Phillies all day. Um, other big things, I mean, football. There's been some huge moves since we last uh, last spoke. I mean, the Panthers swinging for that number one pick. They obviously have their eyes on somebody. I'm assuming quarterback? Yeah, yeah, it has to be. Yeah, it has to be. You're not trading four, four picks and your best receiver for – I mean, Will Anderson's a great player, but it's got to be one of these quarterbacks. C.J. Stroud seems to be the big consensus. But I don't, I don't know enough about college football to tell you who would be the guy. But Stroud just looks like the the guy. Like he's big, great arm, great accuracy, has a bit of mobility, but doesn't use it a ton. Um, my thing though is Ohio State quarterbacks don't usually pan out very well in the league. So yeah, the couple that come to mind for me are Tyrell Tyrell Pryor and Cardell Jones. Cardell Jones, Dwayne Haskins, Justin Fields. There you go. I think Fields is actually onto something, and I think if the Chicago is making moves, yeah, if they can really beef up that roster around him, they should, they should be a lot better. <coughs> excuse me, this upcoming year. I mean, well, you had DJ Moore, like I you just say, said, probably the best receiver they've had on that li- in that roster for twenty years. 
And then, I mean, Brandon Marshall, was he in his prime there? Or was that, like, older Brandon Marshall? I, I'm drawing a blank on what I want to say he, that was his second stop because he was in Denver first and then ended up in Chicago. So he was still solid. I mean, Alshon I mean, Jeffrey was they there, They had Alshon. And, I mean, a lot of that was they haven't had a true franchise quarterback ever. I mean, Jim McMahon. You don't want to count Jim Jay Cutler? <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, McMahon. Rex Grossman. Yeah, see, exactly. You're proving my point for me. Uh, <laughs> um yeah, I think Chicago's doing some really cool stuff. They brought in uh, my guy, Tremaine Edmonds. He was our our middle linebacker for a few years. Yeah, I think they brought in the linebacker from the Eagles, too, uh, Edwards. Yeah, um, yeah, TJ Edwards, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, so, I mean, they have some solid uh, solid. Plus, pieces, just gained a lot of draft capital. Tons of draft capital. There's other guys signing to go to them. I mean, there's they're going to be an interesting team. The NFL this year is going to be very in- interesting. I'm waiting to see if... The Jets really do pull the trigger on Aaron Rodgers. He said that's where he's going to play, but nothing's happening on that front. Yeah, I think the Packers and Jets are just trying to figure out what the package looks like to send Rodgers to the Jets. I, I hope the Packers ask for a King's ransom because I want Rodgers to go to the Jets, be an absolute bum, which he probably won't be, but I want to see him be a bum, but then I want to see them have to give up a whole bunch to get him because – it was uh, like empty their cabinet of drafts. Yeah, because they've been drafting inco- incredibly well the past few years. And Sauce Gardner was a great pick. Oh yeah, though just all across the board, they just seem to be drafting really well. Outside of Zach Wilson, that was a pretty bad move. Um, yeah, quarterbacks out of BYU usually don't work out for you, especially number two overall, <laughs> unless your name's Steve Young, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. But besides oh, that, it's oh, like oh, 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 the way that that can- cameraman misread that. Cameraman usually gets you when you're not at the ballpark. <laughs> he sure does. All right, Tom, well, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors, and we got some stories to talk about today. All right, let's do it. This episode of Going Back, Back, Back is brought to you by Rucci Heating and Cooling, LLC, located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. For all of your heating, air conditioning, and plumbing needs, call the professionals today at 484-849-1015. Rucci Heating and Cooling, LLC, the one-stop call for your business and or home. Call them again at 484 484- Eight four nine one zero one five. All right, and we are back, uh, Tom. I believe last episode I started off. So, what do you got for us today? Yeah, I would say a pretty big story here in the world of college basketball. Um, so, the nineteen sixty six Texas men's Western basketball team starts five African American players in the national title game, becoming the first university to do so um, to start five African Americans in the championship game like that. Yeah, this is an awesome story. That I remember playing basketball growing up. Glory Road came out, and I I watched that movie so many times. It was just a really awesome story. I'm excited to hear more about the actual details of it. So kind of gets you hyped too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really cool. So Tom, uh, hit us with it. What what do we got going on? Sure. So obviously you can't just start at the championship game. You kind of gotta give a little backstory with their schedule and give you some information as to how they how they did throughout the season. So season starts December 4th, 1965 against Eastern New Mexico. Rather easy win, 89 to 38. And that's how their schedule kind of goes throughout the whole season. A lot of easy wins on the schedule. They ended up only having one loss on the season, which was their last regular season game of the year actually against Seattle. Uh, March 5th, 1966, they lose 72 to 74 to finish the regular season at 23 and 1. That's a really, I mean, <laughs> that's a heck of a season. Yeah, they were obviously playing very well, national champions for a reason. Um, so, speaking of their lineup, their 
five starters that made history. It's actually was also the first time that five African African Americans were in the starting lineup together. Was this season for Texas Western? Um, their starters were Bobby Joe Hill, Orston Artis. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Willie Worsley, Har- Harry Flor- Flornoy, and David Latin. So Bobby Joe Hill and David Latin are probably their two better players. Checking out their stat lines, Bobby Joe Hill was a leading scorer. He averaged 15 points, three rebounds. Dave Latin, 14 points, eight and a half boards per game. And then Orston Artis, 12, 12 and a half points a game, three and a half boards. Neville Shedd coming off the bench, 10 and a half points, eight rebounds. Harry, he was averaging eight points, 10 rebounds. And Willie, eight points, two rebounds. So overall, just like a very solid team. And as far as the team went, they were very good offensively, but even better defensively. They averaged about 78 points per game. And then as far as defensively went, oh, that's a home run. Who was that? Uh, Beats me. Well, it's a tie game, uh, USA-Japan. Munetaka Murakami. That ball got out of here quickly. Yikes. Um, So then as far as Texas Western and their defense, they're allowed 62.7 points per game. So they were more or less stifling opponents on the defensive end and having their way on the offensive end of the floor as well. Now, no one's going to – excuse me. So you watch this game now, and you're probably wondering, like, what all the hubbub is about. It's arguably the most important college basketball game ever played, yet it looked more like a Princeton-Dartmouth game you would see on a Friday night in January. (laughs) It's 10 players laughably in short shorts, slowly going through, you know, 40 minutes of ordinary basketball. There's not much drama, very little passion, and if you go to a local high school game, you know, especially in this area, you'd probably see a lot more athletic talent there today. So this is when the NCAA title game had yet to morph into March Madness like we know it, when Kentucky and Texas Western met on Saturday night, March 19th, 1966, in the University of Maryland's Coalfield House. So the tournament today, we got a whole selection Sunday that just happened a couple weeks ago, you know, a fully televised event. The committee announces each team that's in the field, lay out each bracket. There's 68 teams invited to the big dance compared to only 22 when Texas Western was there. And even six of those 22 receive a first-round bye. I mean, heck, there was more games played on Thursday and Friday of the opening round this year compared to the teams that were invited to the tournament in 1965. So that just goes to show you how much bigger this event has become over time. Wait, so you said there was only 22 teams? Yes. In the field? And, and six s- received a first round bye. There's, what, 68 now with the playing games? Yeah, including those uh, those uh, four playing games, yeah, 68 yeah. total. Wow. That's crazy. So drastically different, but... There was little to no madness surrounding this contest. In fact, uh, starting time for the game was actually 10 p.m., wasn't carried by a major network, and was televised only on a tape-delayed basis in several American cities. Now, you go and examine the crowd, the crowd and the film more closely. Basically, everybody in the crowd is white. So are the NCAA officials, the referees, coaches, cheerleaders, and almost all the sports writers on press row. Well, yeah, just like most sports at the time, we're still pretty, very white at the time. Yeah, and high up in the bleachers, actually, Kentucky fans, they had brought their own Confederate flag as the Wildcats, five white players lined up for the opening tip. Now, here's where the history begins. Walking towards the red M on center court in their orange uniforms, white converses, 
are five starters for Texas Western, and they are all black. So totally night and day difference between what you're seeing from Kentucky versus Texas Western. Now, until that moment, at the height of the Civil Rights era, no major college team had ever started five African Americans in the NCAA championship game. In fact, until Texas Western coach Don Haskins did it earlier in the season, no major college team had ever um, started five African Americans in any game. Now, on the first time, for the first time that night, on the edge of the Mason-Dixon line, which, as we know, kind of separates the South from the North, a major American sports championship would be contested by one team. That was all white, and the other starters were entirely black. So what a piece of history. If basketball ever took a turn, that was it, said Nolan Richardson, the Arkansas coach who played for Haskins at Texas Western. So Texas Western, they're an independent uh, from remote El Paso, was little known outside the Southwest despite his 27-1 record and earning the number three seed for the tournament. Now this uh, 72-65 victory that night over Kentucky, who was the number one seed, and coached by legendary Adolph Rupp, stunned college basketball and upset conventional wisdom. So at the time, American culture and sporting mythology insisted at least one white starter was necessary for success. So really just different thinking back then. <laughs> and black athletes prevailing wisdom implied needed the steadying, steadying hand of a white teammate. Otherwise, games would dissolve into chaos. It's like playing today, I couldn't even imagine having that type of thought compared to then. That's, no, it's just ridiculous. And we've come to learn that that's obviously not the case. Yeah, and I mean, Ron Hudley, a former uh, player at West Virginia and actually played for the Lakers, had a quote when asked about the Texas Western team. Um, John W. Stewart in the Baltimore Sun that weekend had the quote. Um, he said, so Ron Hundley said, they can do everything with the basketball but sign it. I mean, I don't know where that comes from. Like, it's just really harsh, and you yeah. you don't understand it. It just wasn't right. It's a shame that, you know, these players went through that, and I couldn't imagine going through that. It has to be, you know, something different. and Something we'll, we'll never understand. I never for understand. Sure. I mean, that's just... I know it was a different time, but that's just it. I don't. I just don't understand it in, entirely how they could act and talk that way to, about other people. Yeah, and it's like you're playing college basketball with them. Like it's a, it's a shame that these guys had to go through this, but you know it's awesome, an awesome story. And if you've never watched the the movie about them, go check it out. It's definitely must watch. Oh yeah, definitely puts it in, into perspective better than. Any storytelling we do can. Yeah, that's for sure. We're, we're amateurs over here. <laughs> so, uh, James H. Jackson um, from that Maryland Sun, Baltimore Sun uh, paper, he said, the miners who don't worry much about defense, but they try to pour the ball through the hoop as much as possible, will present quite a challenge to Kentucky. The running, gunning Texas Quintet could do more things with a basketball. Well, I'm not going to continue to read this uh, quote because that's just, you know, that's not fair to say and – we're not going to add that in there. So, in fact, the opposite was true. Texas Western, kind of like I discussed earlier, they walked the ball up the court, ran a rigidly patented offense, and emphasized defense, allowing just 62 points per game. So, their one guard, Willie Worsley, he said, we were more white-oriented than any of the other teams in the Final Four. Duke and Utah were the others, with along with Kentucky. And we played the most intelligent, the most boring, the most dis disciplined game out of the four of them. So number one ranked Kentucky, meanwhile, was the run-and-gun team. So as they were known, Rupp's Runts, featuring future NBA coach Pat Riley, future ESPN broadcaster Larry Conley, 
and Louis Dampier were small, quick, and athletic. I didn't realize Pat Riley was on that team. I didn't either. That. I learned that myself. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So, and like all of Coach Rupp's teams, they absolutely ran and took the fast break at every opportunity. So on this night, to the surprise of almost everyone, Texas Western's defense and superior rebounding absolutely stifled Kentucky. The Wildcats were only previous loss had come to Tennessee earlier in the season, and it just happened to be the same day that Texas Western lost to Seattle. On this night, they only shot 38% from the field. Now, even as Jubilant Miner celebrated, a new set of myths was emerging. So Rupp's lingering bitterness helped paint the Miners as urban street thugs, quasi-professionals imported from northern cities, only to win Coach Haskins a championship. I don't expect much more when I hear somebody named Adolf. Yeah, it didn't seem like he was the um, most socially acceptable person. Bit of a scumbag. So in his book that came out a decade later, uh, James Mishner characterized the game as one of the most wretched stories in the history of American sports. He called the Texas Western players loose-jointed ragamuffins. That's a that's a new one. Um, definitely not going to try that one out either. <laughs> so hopelessly outclassed by Rupp's pristine Kentucky program, that again was nearly opposite of what the actual reality was. So of Texas Western's team, um, seven other players were African-American. They also had four white guys on the team and one Hispanic player as well. Now those guys, they did not play play that night. And on the team, four people actually graduated and finished their degree at Texas Western. So the other three came within a semester of their degrees and have not suffered because of it. So David Latin, he's actually an executive with a Houston liquor distributor. Um, Orston Artis became a detective sergeant in Gary, Indiana. And Bobby Joe Hill was a senior buyer with El Paso Natural Gas Company. Meanwhile, even though it was never mentioned until decades later, later, By the mid-1970s, four of Kentucky's five starters, including Dampier and Riley, did actually not earn degrees. So it's funny how this all works out, and it's a bit of, I guess, uh, hypocrisy going on here. Yeah, it just just shows you the state of mind of, I guess, I don't want to say all white people in the country, but white people in the South um, during that time that the hypocrisy was there even when, with their own eyes, they could see that the absolute opposite was true compared to what they were saying. But, hey, we see, still see that a lot in our, in our current society. So, Yeah, it's unfortunate, and hopefully we can move on to better times here. Um, so the game actually began with a message informed by Haskins that Rupp had vowed that five African-Americans would never beat his team. Texas Western center David Latin had a point to prove. On the minor's second possession, he took a pass from Bobby Joe Hill, and as Haskins had suggested... He slammed a forceful dunk over Kentucky's Pat Riley. So Latin had said, take that, you white honky. Uh, That's a funny one. (laughs) So Riley recalled later on saying, it was a violent game. I don't mean there were any fights, but they were desperate and they were committed and they were more motivated than we were. Oh, yeah, they're playing with a chip on their shoulder, whereas Kentucky came into this game with everyone thinking they're going to be top dog and take it, no problem. But that, you know, thankfully for the Texas Western team, that – was not what happened. I mean, they came out and, I don't want to say dominated the game, but it certainly seems that way. So they nursed the lead more or less the whole game, pulling ahead to stay when Hill converted consecutive steals from Kentucky guards, and those two layups gave the Miners a 16-11 to 11 advantage, and from that point on, they never trailed in the game again. 
So Rupp jumps up at one point, calls timeout. As they were coming off the court, he confronts his two guards about the steals. Uh, Kentucky player Eddie Mullins recalls that Texas Western's sports information director, um, he said, you stupid SOBs, he just couldn't take it. So clearly Rupp gave no no two ways about anything and pretty much laid it all out there all the time and probably should have filtered what he said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably should have, but, you know, he certainly was not known for doing so. Yeah, I mean, there were some quotes in here that I took out that's just not not okay. I was not going to repeat those on this podcast, so. And to think that even with the, sounds like pretty crappy person he was, he's uh he was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame uh, before he even wrapped up his career coaching at Kentucky. Yeah, and so this actually turns out to be the only NCAA title game where he loses, and apparently that was, you know, something that didn't sit well sit well with him. Sorry, words are tough sometimes. And he carried that memory of the game to his grave, wrote his biographer, Russell Rice. Friends noted that even as he was dying with cancer in 1977, the old coach lamented to visitors about this game. So it turns out Rupp, I would say he's a sore loser, but that's just my take. He's um, always blamed the loss on a flu bug, on inept shooting, on the referees, sometimes embellishing his excuses with hints that Texas Western somehow had cheated by using ineligible players. So that doesn't describe sore loser. I don't know what does, Brian. <laughs> no, serious sore loser. And, I mean, part of that might be because as a head coach, he had a record of 876 wins and 190 losses. Yeah, clearly knows so basketball, but should have just kept his mouth shut. Yeah, but clearly does not know how to handle himself uh professionally and appropriately. So Haskins, um, he fumed at his counterpart's reaction. Later that year, um, when he and Rupp actually crossed paths at a sports banquet in Ohio, the younger coach nearly snapped on Rupp. He said, I had been listening to all this damn crap out of him, and I, and it's a wonder I didn't say something to him about it, but I didn't. So Haskins, clearly the bigger man, kept his cool and just let it go. Now, it was the presence of Rupp with his four national titles, his then- record at the time 749 victories and his history of foot dragging on integration that lent the 1966 championship game uh, with so much of its significance so he and his all-white kentucky program were not were not only the epitome of college basketball at the time but the idea foils for haskins and texas western so interesting i'm not going to try to humanize adolph up here because it sounds like he was pretty rough um, but it turns out in 1960, he actually hired an assistant coach to specifically recruit African-American players. I actually once asked the UK, the Kentucky president, University of Kentucky president, to leave the SEC so he could recruit black players. Hmm. So there's team, his team might have been all white beyond his control. Okay. That's but either way, he did say some pretty messed up stuff about Texas Western. Yeah, not definitely not something you want to be repeating. Um, so... It was as if history demanded that for change finally to occur, a great hero and a great villain must meet. So, naturally, Rupp and Haskins fit those roles perfectly. So, in 1966, two years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Southeastern Conference athletics remained segregated. So, for several years, Kentucky President John W. Oswald, realizing changing times in the school's broader state geography, gave it, it a unique opportunity had been pushing Rupp to recruit an African-American to his team. So this story is kind of, I don't want to say conflicting with what you just said, Brian, but it seems like maybe higher higher people above Rupp were not pushing for it at first, so he wasn't 
looking to recruit those type of players. Hey, listen, yeah, I don't know. It's all hearsay as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, for his his own words backtrack on what I just read about him. So, you know, he'll, in my mind, live in infamy for that. But Yeah, I mean, there was two big names even in the state of Kentucky. Uh, don't know the first one, Butch Beard, but Wes Unsold. I'm familiar with his name in the game of basketball. He tried to recruit them, but they were reluctant to play for him. Yeah, I just saw as well. They both went down to play at Louisville instead. So it wasn't until December of 1970 that Rupp had an African-American player on the team uh, by the name of Tom Payne. Two years later, though, Payne had left, and Kentucky was an all-white basketball program again. By then, even you know deeper south, SEC schools like Auburn and Mississippi had several African-Americans starting on their team. So curiously, while Oswald had been prodding Rupp, Texas Western President Joseph Ray tried to move Haskins in the opposite direction. Ray suggested Hoskins start at least one white player. So that seems like it just goes against everything Hoskins was for. He didn't care what skin color you are. He just wanted to make sure he had the best five on the team. Yeah, he just wanted to win the game. At all times. Oh, yeah. So Haskins consent. He doesn't recall the incident, but Ray spoke of their meeting in an interview for the Oral History Project at Texas Western, now renamed the University of Texas at El Paso. Whether it happened or not, Haskins still continued to start his five African-American players for the minors. So while blacks could not play at most southern and southwestern schools in the mid-1960s, Haskins welcomed them at Texas Western, recruiting them from cities like New York, Detroit, and Gary, Indiana. So his assistant, Mo Iba, had said, the fact that he was doing something historic by playing five blacks, that probably never crossed Don's mind. Hell, he'd have played five kids from Mars if they were his five best players. So really just alluding to the point, he didn't care. He just wanted the best players on the team so he could win, and it worked out because they won the national title this year. So in the years immediately after Texas Western's title, the integration of college sports took a great leap forward. So between 1966 and 1985, the average number of African Americans on college teams jumped from about 2.9 all the way up to about 5.7, so more or less doubled. So that's a major step forward there, and why this is such a pivotal game in the history of college athletics. So at Northern Colleges, um, there was some sort of like an unwritten rule for coaches. So this is something I found here. They were quoted to say, two blacks at home, as in home when they're playing, three on the road, and then when you're behind, you have four of them on the court. So again, just really like backwards thinking, and you're more or less saying that they're the better players, but Haskins always thought, I'm going to play my best players no matter what. Yeah. White, black. Like I mentioned, they had a Latino player on the team as well. So if he was better, he would have been seeing the floor and it wouldn't have made a difference. Yep. So now African-Americans were recruited as reserves as well as starters, and athletes who had been directed to small black schools were now being lured to major state universities. The bigger change, of course, came in the South. So in the 1966-1967 season, every SEC uh, team had integrated basketball teams, and it was quite quite clear after March of 66 that Southern basketball teams would have to change or become increasingly non-competitive nationally. And that's something that Charles Martin had said, uh, one of the basketball historians. So Haskins, he ended up coaching until 1999, never reaching another Final Four. In the last of Rupp's 1,066 games at Kentucky, in March of 1972, his team lost to Florida State. Kentucky was, again, an all-white team at the time, 
while Florida State had started five African-Americans. So Texas Westerns, Harry Flournoy, said no one will remember him without remembering us, and I guess there is a certain justice to that. Don Haskins coached at Texas Western slash Texas El Paso for his entire 38-year coaching career. That's awesome. So Bobby Joe Hill, Orson Artist, Willie Worsley, Harry Flournoy, and David Latin, all names that should go down in history and should always be remembered for the right reasons. Yeah, that's it's. If you haven't seen the movie, I 100% recommend it. It's a really great movie. Um, really dives into, obviously, gets some. There's awesome basketball scenes, but it really dives into the cultural shift that came with this, and the way that the team as a whole was approached based on the fact that they had a black starting lineup. And it's really a great movie. Um, 100% recommend it to everybody. And if you like remember the Titans, I'd say it's pretty similar, just different sport. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually a great way to put it. But is that everything, Tom? Is yeah, I mean, they had a pretty easy path to the national title game, too. Um, they started their run against, hold on, who is it here? Here we go. They started against Oklahoma City, beating them 89-74. Then they faced Cincinnati. They go to overtime with them, win 78-76 have a game against Kansas. They win in double overtime, 81 to 80. Pretty easy semifinal matchup against, um, who is this? Utah, where they win 85-78. And then they win the national title game, 72 to 65. Just so cool. Honestly, just so cool in general that the, it kick-started, you know, what we know now in basketball. It's it's a definitely a, a black-dominated sport at this point um, uh, because it, I mean, it took a long time, but they but they got the, the respect they deserve, and, you know, I, I, it's no longer about the color of your skin and just what you can do on the court. Yeah, that's how it should be. There shouldn't be. I feel weird saying they. I don't know how to characterize it better. It's not like a. Yeah, right. Pointing that out in any kind of way, but, yeah, black, you know, we all know it. Black guys dominate the NBA. It's the. It, it is what it is, but it's no longer about the color. The, it, color your skin doesn't matter. If you can play basketball, you can play basketball, and that's all they're looking for. That's how it should be no matter the sport, no matter where we're playing. Oh, yeah. So if you're the best player, you should be on the court. If you make it to the NBA, great for you. And as long as it's a great product, hey, that's what we want to be entertained as the fans of the of the game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just want to see the best in every sport. just want to see the best athletes on, on the court, the field, whatever it may be. I don't care who you are, where you came from, as long as you're not a jerk. For sure. So, Brian, what do you got for us this week? All right. So, we're going to take a little bit of a turn. Uh, it is Women's History Month. Um, there's a lot of talk on all the major sports networks. Uh, NCAA Women's Basketball is going on right now. There's some really awesome players um, in women's basketball. But I'm going to go – we're going back, Tom, as I tend to do. We're going back, back, back. Uh, I'm talking about Babe Diedrichson. Zaharias. Have you ever heard of Babe? Babe Ruth? No, no, no. No, no, no. Babe Diedrichson Zaharias. So I'm going to take that as a no. Yeah, no. So Babe, <laughs> I have. babe Ruth is the famous Babe. Um, but this week in 1934, Babe Diedrichson at the time, Zaharias was not, their last, was not her last name at the time, Babe Diedrichson pitched a total of four innings in three Major League Spring Training Exhibition games, becoming the first 
and I believe only woman to ever pitch in an MLB uh, game of any sort. On March 20th of 34, she gave up one walk and no hits in one inning for the Philadelphia A's against the Brooklyn Dodgers. On March 22nd, she pitched the first inning for the St. Louis Cardinals against the Boston Red Sox. It was reported that under the tutelage of Burley Grimes, Dizzy Dean, and others, she has learned to stand on the rubber, wind up like a big leaguer, and throw a rather fair curve. Uh, Although the Red Sox did score three runs against her in the inning before she got Boston third baseman Bucky Walters to fly out to future Hall of Famer Joe Medwick in left field to end the inning. Uh, She was then relieved at the start of the second inning by Cardinal pitcher Bill Hallahan. There were 400 fans in attendance at the time. 400, that's a big crowd. I'm pretty sure I played (laughs) one baseball game at least with more than 400 fans in my in my day, so that just shows you how much things have changed. Yeah, I think there's more than 400 people in the first uh, first level here at the, at the World Baseball <laughs> uh, Classic. Way more. <laughs> um, and then on March 25th, she played for the New Orleans Pelicans, not the basketball team, a baseball team, against the Cleveland Indians, pitching two scoreless innings and lining out in her only plate appearance. Was it spring training you said still? Yeah, spring training still. Um, at the time, uh, women and um, black uh, uh, non-white players were not allowed to sign contracts with Major League Baseball, um, although they c- could play in other leagues. There was the Negro Leagues, um, and then the uh, there was a, w- a women's baseball league at one point. Um, okay. Le- uh, if, you, if you've seen a league of their own, it is based off of that. Um, so very interesting as well. Another good movie to check out. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out. I've honestly never watched it. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, so the most exciting thing about this is obviously the fact that she pitched in the games, but I really want to talk about Babe herself. So, Mildred Ella Diedrichson was born on June 26, 1911. So, she was 23 years old when she pitched in those games. She was an American athlete who excelled in golf, basketball, baseball, and track and field. Sounds like my kind of athlete. Yeah, a little bit of an all-around athlete. Um, She won two gold medals in track and field at the 32 Summer Olympics before turning to professional golf and winning 10 LPGA majors. Majors or tournaments? A major, <laughs> 10 LPGA majors. Wow. Okay. We'll get into her, her accomplishments here uh, as we get into this. But Sheesh. So Mildred Ella D- Diedrichson was born on June 26, 1911, as the sixth of seven children in the coastal city of Port Arthur, Texas. Her mother, Hannah, and her father, Ole, Ole, Ole Dr- Diedrichson, were immigrants from Norway. Um, although her three eldest siblings were born in Norway, Babe and her three other siblings were all born in Texas, in Port Arthur. She later changed the spelling of her surname. Uh, doesn't matter. She took the E out, changed it to an O. The E looked too, too foreign. Um, at the age of four, too Norwegian. Yeah, yeah. At the at the age of four, she moved to Beaumont, Texas, with her family. Uh, she claims to have acquired the nickname Babe after Babe Ruth upon hitting five home runs in a childhood baseball game. But her mom, her Norwegian mother, had called her Bebe, B E B E, from the time she was a toddler. Dang, I remember hitting two home runs in a game was happy. I know. Can't I say I've ever hit five. <laughs> yeah, I think I had, I had one two home run game as well. It was pretty cool. I think the balls actually the balls are in this closet right here. My parents dropped them off last time they came to visit. Love that. They're only about oh, I don't know, almost twenty years old at this point. So Babe was best known for her athletic gifts, but she did have many talents. Um, she was an avid sewer. She was an excellent seamstress. Made many of her own clothes, including her golf outfits. She claims to have won these. A lot of this is her claiming for some of these things. Uh, to have won the sewing championship at the 1931 Texas State Fair in Dallas. She did win the South Texas State Fair in Beaumont, but then embellished the, the story for many years. Um, yeah, come on, babe. What do you do? I think as we all tend to do a bit. Uh, she attended Beaumont High School, was never a strong student, um, and was report- forced to repeat the eighth grade. 
She be, so she was a year older than her classmates. Um, she eventually dropped out without graduating, and she moved to Dallas to play basketball. At the time, she was also a singer and a harmonica, harmonica player and recorded several songs for Mercury Records, the Mercury Records label. Her biggest seller was I Felt a Teardrop, with Detour being the flip side of that vinyl. So, What can't this girl do? <laughs> yeah. So during this time, um, she became a... So she was obviously an athlete at the time. As I said, she had won two gold medals at the 32 Summer Olympics um, before turning to professional golf. So this had made her famous because back in the day, the Olympics were huge. Everyone knew what was going on. I know we talked about this briefly when I talked about the Winter Olympics. Um, but she was famous as Babe Diedrichson. She ended up marrying George Zaharias. He was a professional wrestler um, in St. Louis, Missouri, and they got married on December 23rd, 1938. Thereafter, she was then known as Babe Diedrichson Zaharias or Babe Zaharias. Like WWE wrestling or like Olympic wrestling? Uh, he was a like a WWE style wrestler. Nice. So he was a showman. Um, wrestling was very large back then. It was a huge, a huge draw. So she became known as Babe Zaharias. The two actually met while playing golf. Um, George was a Greek-American and, and a native of Pueblo, Colorado. He was called the Crying Greek from Cribble Creek. Um, also did some part-time acting appearing in the 1952 movie Pat and Mike. They never went on to have children, um, and they were, for some reason, they tried to adopt, and they were not allowed to do so. So, why am I talking about Babe? Well, first of all, like I said, it's Women's History Month, so um, wanted to get, uh, we haven't had any stories about female athletes in here just yet. Yeah, we missed last week's episode, so we're yeah. kind of playing a little catch-up here. But this woman is a crazy athlete. So, she initially gained world fame in track and field, um, as well as being an All-American in basketball. She played organized baseball and softball, was also an expert diver, roller skater, and a bowler. Hey, bowling, that's right up with me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. She's, she's you, you would love this woman. Yeah, bowling, bowling, baseball, golf. Um, Sorry, so, Danielle. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Starting off, uh, she was an AAU champion, so the Amateur Athletic Union was huge. Still is, in the at least in the basketball world. I'm not sure. I know they do other sports, but I know AAU basketball is huge. Yeah, my, I mean, my sister played for local team, the Commons, from, like, first grade all the way through in the high school. I'll say, yeah, I played AAU through high school. It was a, a lot of fun. Uh, played some really high-level basketball. It was really cool. I was not at that good, but we played against a lot of really good players. Um, so her first job after high school was she was a secretary for the Employers Casualty Insurance Company of Dallas. Those sh- they strictly employed her to play basketball as an amateur on the company's industrial team, the Golden Cyclones. So that used to be a big thing with – in corporate um corporate co- or big companies back in the day is that they would have teams in different sports and they would be literally basically professional and they're amateur teams but they're professionals who are hired specifically to play for those teams dang why can't we get i know there companies was do that right i know softball was a big one for uh fast pitch softball was a big one growing up for men not growing Thanks. up but back in the day sign me up basketball softball i don't care right um, so the competition that they played in was governed at the time by AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union. And despite leading the team to an AAU basketball championship in 1931, she really first achieved wider attention as a track and field athlete. So she represented her company in the 1932 AAU championships, competing in eight out of ten events, won five of them outright, and tied for first in a sixth event. So out of the ten she did, or eight she did, she tied for one fifth by herself, one first by herself in five of them, and tied for first and a sixth. Um, her teams were her performances were enough to win the team championship, despite her being the sole member of her team. So she was the only one doing it, but she just crushed it. Yeah, she's a stud. 
So after her performance at the AU Championships, uh, Babe went on to the 1932 Olympics, where she set four world records, winning two gold medals and one silver medal for track and field um, at the Olympics in Los Angeles. In the 80-meter hurdles, she equaled the world record of 11.8 seconds in her opening heat. In the final, she broke her record with an 11.7 second clocking, taking gold. Uh, it's interesting now because you look at sprinting events and they're to a uh, tenth of a hundred at this point, no longer just to the, uh, or, yeah. So it's like 0.75, stuff like that. Right. That's the tenth. So before it was just 10.7? Yeah, so it was 11.7 and she took the gold. She then went on to the javelin where she won a gold with an Olympic record throw of 43.69 meters. In the high jump, she took silver with a world record tying leap of 1.657 meters or 5.44 feet. 0.69. Nice. 6.5, Tom. Yeah, that was the one before. Uh, 43.69. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were just a little late on that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I wasn't sure. I, was, I wasn't trying to butt in. <laughs> no, you're good. You can butt in whenever you feel like. Um, so she took silver with a world record le- tying leap of 1.657 meters. Fellow American Gene Shelley also jumped that same height. And the pair tied in a jump off when the bar was raised to 1.67 meters or five and a half feet. Shelley was awarded the gold after Diedrichson was ruled to have used an improper technique. Um, so Babe did not compete in the discus throw as fellow American Lillian Copeland beat her out in the Olympic trials. Copeland then went on to win the discus, the gold medal in the discus. Diedrichson is the only track and field athlete, male or female, to win individual Olympic medals in separate running, throwing, and jumping events. So wow. Javelin, high jump. And um, the 80 meter hurdles. And this is the 1930 games you said. 34? 1932 Los Angeles 32. Olympics. Yes, sir. So following the Olympics, uh, she performed on the vaudeville circuit, uh, traveling with teams like Babe Diedrichson's All Americans basketball team and the bearded House of David commune team. It's a uh, great team name. <laughs> I don't know anything about them, but sign me up. <laughs> the bearded, the bearded team. We could fit in. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll fit right in. Right. Uh, Diedrichson was also a competitive billiards player, although she was not a champion on that level. She was noted in the January 1933 press for playing and badly losing a multi-day straight pool match in New York City against famed female cueist Ruth McGinnis. So this is where I figured you may have heard at her some point being a big golf, as big of a golf fan as you are, because Babe Diedrichson Zaharias is best known for playing golf. Yeah, I can't say I have. As I had mentioned, she had won 10 majors. Um, so that's the, just, just scraping the surface with her. So by 1935, Babe began to play golf. She was actually a late comer to this sport in which she best became best known. So 1935, she was born in 1911. So she started playing golf at 23 years old. Wait, that's when she started playing golf? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? Yeah. Jeez. Started playing golf at 23 years old. Um, shortly thereafter, um, so she became, this is the sport she's best known for. Shortly thereafter, she was denied amateur status, and so in January of 1938, she competed in the Los Angeles Open, a PGA tournament. No other woman competed against men in this tournament until Annika Sorenstam, Susie Whaley, Michelle Wee, and Brittany Lincecum uh, almost six decades later. I was like, uh, Michelle Wee definitely sticks out the most. I think she played when she was like 13 in a men's event. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I remember growing up and watching that, and it's just like mesmerized by the fact that this 13-year-old is even competing with Anyone, let alone yeah. the professional level, and a bunch of men. Whether she's men or right, man or girl, like whatever, like thirteen years old, so on a men's professional event. Right. So Babe got into this tournament in nineteen thirty-eight. Um, she did shot an eighty-one and eighty-four, which are honestly great scores, but she missed the cut because they're not great for professional golf. 
No, yeah. Any day I go out and shoot 81-84, that's a great day. Yeah, right. So in that tournament is actually when she teamed up with George Zaharias and met him for the first time. 11 months later, they got married and settled in Tampa, Florida on the premises of a golf course that they ended up purchasing down the road. So Diedrichson became America's first female golf celebrity and the leading player of the 1940s and early 50s. In order to regain amateur status in the sport, she could not compete. She could n- compete in no other sports for three years. Um, so she gave up competing in anything else to focus on golf. She gained back her amateur status in 1942. In 1945, she had participated in three more PGA Tour events, missing the second cut of the first of them and making the cut for the other two. As of 2018, she remains the only woman to have achieved this. Babe then went on to win the 1946 U.S. Women's Amateur and 47 British Ladies Amateur as the first American to do so, as well as three Women's Western Opens. Babe then went, f- went on to formally turn professional in 1947, and she absolutely dominated the Women's Professional Golf Association and later the Ladies Professional Golf Association. So it was the WPGA and is now the LPGA as we know it. Serious illness would then go on to end her career in the mid-50s. Um, so Zaharias actually went on to win a tournament named after her, the Babe Zaharias Open, in her hometown of Beaumont, Texas. She won the 1947 Title Holders Championship and the 1948 U.S. Women's Open for her fourth and fifth major championships. She then won 17 straight women's amateur victories, a feat that has never been equaled. By 1950, she had won every golf title available. So totaling both her amateur and professional victories, Zaharias won a total of 82 golf tournaments. Wow, that's right up there with Tiger. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, Charles McGrath of the New York Times wrote of Zaharias, except perhaps for Arnold Palmer, no golfer has ever been more beloved by the gallery. People absolutely loved her. Um, so yeah, Tiger has 20 or 24, 82 professional wins on PGA tour. Wow. Probably with Sam Snead. Yeah, it's phenomenal. So it doesn't count as amateur wins, but still, he, he, pro- has a, he probably has a ton of amateur wins too. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so while Zaharias missed the cut in the 38 PGA tour event later, as she became more experienced, she made the cut in every PGA tour event. She entered in January of 1945. She played in three PGA tournaments. She shot 60, 76 and 76 to qualify for the LA Open. She then shot 76-81 to make the two-day cut in the tournament itself, but missed the three-day cut after a 79, making her the first and currently only woman in history to make the cut in a regular PGA Tour event. She continued her cut streak at the Phoenix Open, where she shot 77, 72, 75, and 80, finishing in 33rd place. At the Tucson Ocean, she qualified by shooting 74 and 81, and then shot a 307 in the tournament and finished tied for 42nd. Unlike other female golfers competing in men's events, she got into the LA and Tucson Opens through 36 hole qualifiers as opposed to being a sponsor's exemption. Yeah, those qualifiers are brutal. Like, if you ever, so there's like Twitter accounts out there who like track what's going on with the, the qualifying events each week. If you follow them at all, it's brutal what those guys have to go through, and and females too. I'm sure I don't I don't follow the female game as closely, but I know with the the men on tour, like like you just mentioned, 36 holes, like you got to do that on Monday, and then hope you make it. If not, you're back out there next Monday hoping to qualify for the next event. Honestly, I didn't even know that was a thing to be honest. So yeah, there's um, always a few spots open each week for Monday qualifiers like that. That's pretty cool. Um, in 1948, she became the first woman to attempt to qualify for the U.S. Open, but her application was rejected by the USGA. They stated that the event was intended to be open to men only. So 1950 was Babe's greatest year. 
uh, when she completed the Grand Slam of the three women's majors of the day, the U.S. Open, the title holders championship, and the Women's Western Open, a feat that made her the leader on the money list that year. Also that year, she reached 10 wins faster than any other LPGA golfer, doing so in one year and 20 days, a record that still stands. Wow. Yeah. She was the leading money winner again in 1951, and in 1952 took another major with a title holder's victory, but illness prevented her from playing a full schedule in 52-53. This did not stop her from becoming the fastest player to reach 20 wins, which she did in two years and four months. She just straight out, like, dominating the competition <laughs> i get it's 1950 yeah. but still it's just it's quite impressive to see someone at this this high level of skill and just playing so well right so in the early 2000s espn released a list of their greatest north american athletes of the 20th century babe Diedrichson zaharius was named the 10th greatest north american athlete of the 20th cent- 20th century by espn being the highest ranked woman on their list you said 10 Ten, yeah. Do you, ten. Do you have the top ten, or just I do not have the top okay. ten in front of me. I could sure I could find it, but the fact that I had to I had to say it like this, but the fact that a woman made the top ten, yeah, is, awesome. is f- so cool, and she just sounds like such a badass. Like, yeah, good for her. She wasn't just amazing at one thing; she was phenomenal at a number of them. Um, so, Babe was inducted into the LPGA Hall of Fame in 1951, which is now part of the World Golf Hall of Fame. Um, she did go on to, um, in 1953, she was diagnosed with colon cancer. After undergo- undergoing surgery, she did make a comeback in 1954. She took the Vare Trophy for lowest scoring average, her only win of that trophy, and her 10th and final major was a U.S. Women's Open Championship one month after her surgery and while wearing a colostomy bag. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, un- and, unbelievable. And I don't know, for all of you listeners out there, at least today, the U.S. Open, that's always the toughest test in golf each year. So, I mean, that's how it's always set up for the men. I'm very sure it's similar for how the they set it up for the women. Oh, yeah. But the fairways are always very fast. The rough is always the thickest. The greens are always lightning quick and firm. So it's basically if you're not hitting the fairway, good luck. And if you don't put it onto the green, the rough is thick around it. So it's just like you got to be on point to win the U.S. Open and – the fact that she did that a month after having a major surgery and having a colostomy bag, colostomy bag stick hanging off of her stomach because it's not like you're just walking around and living no, a normal it's life. A you're lot of swinging, core movement, swinging a golf club, and all that comes that, that yeah. comes with it. So, with her win in the U.S. O- Women's Open Championship, she became the second oldest woman to win a major LPGA Championship tournament behind Faye Crocker. Still stands third all time behind Faye Crocker and Sherry Steinhauer. These wins made her the fastest player to reach 30 wins. She won 30 events within five years and 22 days. And in addition to continuing tournament play, she served as the president of the LPGA from 1952 to July of 55. 1955, her color cancer recurred. And despite her limited schedule of eight golfing events that season, she won her last two tournaments in competitive golf. On September 27, 1956, Babe Diedrichson Zaharias died of her illness at the age of 45 at the John Seeley Hospital in Galveston, uh, Texas. At the time of her death, she was still a f- top-ranked female golfer. Uh, she and her husband had earlier established the Babes of Harriet's Fund to support cl- cancer clinics, and she's buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery in her hometown of Beaumont, Texas. She, there, The Babe Dijkson's Harriet's uh, Museum in Beaumont is also one of the city's welcoming centers. Um, she broke the accepted models of femininity in her time, including the accepted models of female athleticism, 
Babe stood five foot seven, weighed 115 pounds. She was physically strong and socially straightforward about her strength. Although a sports hero to many, she was also derided for her manliness. Um, as I said, she was inducted into the LPGA Hall of Fame in 1951. She, in 57, she posthumously received the Bob Jones Award, the highest honor given by the USGA in recognition of distinguished sportsmanship in golf. George accepted that on her behalf four months after her death. She was also one of six initial inductees into the LPGA Hall of Fame at its inception in 1977. And the, um, on top of the museum dedicated to her in Beaumont, Texas, there are several golf courses named after her. That Tampa, Florida golf course that she and her husband owned is now the Babe Zaharias Golf Course and has been given landmark status. And that um, 1973 was inducted into the Colorado Golf Hall of Fame. She'd lived in Denver for most of the 40s and early 50s. Um, and in 1976, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Her most recent award was January 7th, 2021. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Post- oh, wow. Good post- for her. So, uh, yeah, that is the story of Babe Diedrichson Zaharias. I would love to, like, see a movie about her. I'm sure there's some kind of... Like documentary, documentary or something, or something because I feel like I didn't do her justice and just how incredible it sounds like she was. Uh, the fact that she is as a female, not just an athlete in general, but as a female athlete, was ranked as the 10th best North American athlete of the century when there's so many, so many amazing athletes um, in that time period in North America. And that she's 10th. Not even that she made the list, but one of the top 10 is just absolutely fascinating. So... Did it say how many were on that list? I'm sorry if you said that. 100. I think it was top, top, 100. top 100. It was top 100, and she was number 10. We'll have to post that list for y'all so you can reference yeah, it. Yeah, I'll have to find it. I, I'm not sure where I'll find it, but I'm sure I can get it somewhere. It's about. It's got to be 20 years old at this point, but um, just yeah. very cool. She is such a fascinating story. I'd heard of her previously because of her golf dominance. I was not aware that she was dominant in other sports as well. Yeah, what couldn't she do? Um, I'll share some links when we share this post because um, there's even more info about Babe Zaharias that I just could not fit into this episode. Um, some quotes from some famous athletes that had met her in the time. And sounds like she was really, truly a superstar that was ahead of her time. I think she, she was very well appreciated then, but I think she'd be even more appreciated now. And um, I, like I said, I would love to, if I find some info, I will sh- we'll share that on our socials as well. So that if you're interested, we can dive in further to that. But that's my Women's History Month story. Speaking of social medias, I mean, just to plug this in real quick, follow us at going back pod. You can find us on Spotify, Twitter, Instagram, and we've got our YouTube page up and going. We're going to start adding our episodes to there shortly here. Yes, we will. We will be back next week. We had a little break last week because I was out of town on a work trip, but looking forward to continuing to provide you with some great sports history content. And uh, Tom, why don't you take us out? Sure. So uh, a little tip for you all before we get out of here. The trick is growing up without growing old. We wish we could all do that and let's continue to do so. Thanks for joining us this week and we'll see you next week. Peace. (laughs) 